It's about to get real with the MTV original reality TV star OGs, John and Beth, as they chat with great guests to discuss reality TV, music, pop culture, and real world life. Pick up your phone and go to wherever you get your podcasts. Search for Getting Real with John and Beth. Turn it up. Getting Real starts now. You're listening to Getting Real. We are so glad you've tuned in this week. Beth, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm really excited about our guest today. Oh, my goodness. Do you remember the first time you ever was introduced to reality television? I remember when I was because I was on the second season of The Real World with you, and I had never seen the first season of The Real World. And when I went back to watch it out of curiosity, the first reality star of all time is who we get to have on our podcast today. And he's synonymous with reality TV, but you have a special thing in your heart for our guests. Tell us what happened. No, I do. I remember sitting in my bedroom watching the very first season of The Real World and just watching Eric. And yes, Eric is, you know, he's a heartthrob. He's very good looking, but there's so much more to Eric than just his good looks. His just his willingness to share his story with everybody and all the things that he was going through at the time and just so inspiring. And he inspired me and he is the reason why I auditioned to be on the real world. Well, it was crazy. Also meet Eric. That would be great. It was, it was crazy for us to do this experiment that had only been done once in New York by seven people. And they were explaining to me what it was like. And I thought, does that even sound like a good idea? Like that's, that's not something you put on television. So, I mean, these people were brave, but there were seven, okay, initial real worlders. But for some reason, whenever you think of the New York season of the real world, the first reality experiment or television show, you think of our guest today, and a, someone's become a very good friend of both of us, Eric Nice. Eric, welcome to Getting Real. We are super excited that you have taken time and you're on our podcast. Thank you so much. Hi, John. Hi, Beth. <laughs> it's so great to have you. Oh, my God. Like, like. You know, our podcast is audio, but I'm watching, I'm watching Beth right now. She's smiling ear to ear. She's just so happy. To <laughs> I'm always happy to see Eric. Eric, so how did you, how did MTV find you to be on The Real World? I don't even know this story. Uh, how did they find me? It was, it was just another casting. I was, you know, 20 years old, modeling for about a year in New York City, looking to get into acting and I was doing some commercials and things like that. And it was just another casting that came through my agency at the time. Wow. Okay. So when you did that first audition, like what happened? Was it just like they saw you once and they were like, okay, we want you or what happened? No, <laughs> I think I went through probably three or four, maybe five auditions. The first one was just like a regular casting. Here's my photo, blah, blah, blah. They put you on camera and then they brought you back. And then they just started getting deeper and deeper into asking questions, wanting to know about my life, my interests. It was obviously much different than any other casting that I had been on because it was the very first casting I had been on where they were actually interested in me and in my life, you know, not like what you look like and what you look like on camera and what you look like in photos. It was more about your personality, what you liked, what you didn't like, you know, if they said, left are you going to say right <laughs> so they wanted to know they really wanted to know about who i was as a person so eric when they were explaining to you what the show was going to be like this was experimental had never been done before what was it that they said that made you think it would be a good idea to be part of 
They didn't do that. <laughs> they didn't give us any information at all. They just said it was another show for MTV and it was like a soap opera. They didn't give us any details. It was a big old secret until, you know, we packed our bags and walked into the loft. And then that's when, you know, we found out what we were doing. But even then, we still didn't really know what we were doing. We just knew that we were moving into this loft to hang out with some other people. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you thought that sounded like a good idea. Was it was it the free rent or was it, hey, whatever <laughs> exposure this brings could be good? Well, you know, in 1992, when you're a struggling model and you're just trying to make money and, and, and make a life for yourself, uh, free rent for three months in, in a loft in Soho sounded pretty good. <laughs> mm. So that was what was really exciting about it. Being in New York City and, and living in Soho for three months was really cool. The worst case scenario, it was free rent. Exactly. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it seems like, you know, all your roommates, even though you guys had a lot of differences, you were all able pretty much to like come together and you were able to talk about really important issues. Do you still keep in touch with a lot of the cast members from your show? Uh -huh. Yeah, we do stay in contact with each other. We check in with each other from time to time. The reunion that happened a couple of years ago definitely helped with that. But no, the relationships, they're special. They're really, really special because we did something that was groundbreaking, not just for TV. I think, you know, globally, especially where we're at today with obviously social media and having a conversation, having an unfiltered conversation about how you feel about what's happening in the world. And I think that's the most groundbreaking th thing of all. And when you think about the real world and what we what we did, all of us, um, it gave regular people a unfiltered platform to speak from your heart. And I mean, we could talk about that for days and days and days and days, considering the state of the world right now. And what's happening in social media with deplatforming and all that stuff, trying to silence people. Oh, you can't talk about this, but you can talk about that. Right. So on our show, that didn't exist. It was just open. It was free game. We just talked about whatever you talked about and whatever it is that you were feeling, whatever your opinions were. Obviously, your judgments and your fears and your criticism and all that stuff came shining through like a meteor. So it's just great entertainment to be able to be on a platform like that and really share your heart authentically. And I think that was something that was also really special about our show because we had no idea. So there was no preconceived you know, ideas like, oh, if this happens, I'm going to do this. And if somebody says this, I'm going to do that. And if they invite me to go do this, I'm going to respond this way. Like that didn't exist. So I think that was probably to me, that was the most special thing at all. And I think that's why our relationships have lasted, you know, throughout the years, because we we shared a moment in time that would not just change the landscape of television forever, but it would also change how we communicate online. Yeah. Through the internet. 
Yeah. When I was first approached about being on season two, Eric, it was said to me many times that I better take advantage of this opportunity because this was never going to last. You know, I hadn't seen your season, but you guys knew it was going to be on MTV. Did you know how groundbreaking it was going to be? Did you have any inclination whatsoever that this is going to set a huge trend that's going to exist in three decades? Yeah, I've actually, I've talked about this a bunch and and my cast actually brings it up often whenever we get together and we do reunions and we talk about this because I had a feeling when we did the press a week before we were finished, all of the press came in. And when I saw who the press was, I knew that this was going to be bigger than what we had expected. And nobody really even thought that because the Wall Street Journal walked in and I was like, okay, I'm a model. <laughs> and, you know, why would the Wall Street Journal be here? And so I knew in that moment that something really special happened and I knew it was going to last forever. It's never going to die ever. <laughs> and I mean, people that are listening, Eric mentioned it, that you guys ended up doing a reunion show. And when I started watching it, I was crying. And then to find out that you ended up having COVID, so you couldn't even be in the house with everybody. I was like, no, we need Eric. I feel like they need to redo your reunion so you can be in the house with everybody because we really missed out on that experience of you being in the room with the original roommates. Would you do that? Yeah, of course I would do that. I mean, you know, I don't, you know, the production was talking afterwards about doing some kind of a documentary or something like that. I thought it was going to happen, but didn't, didn't go through. Yeah, I would hope that maybe one day in the future that would happen. But some of our cast have had some really intense, traumatic, emotional responses um, to certain things. And also, we all know what happened with Becky on the show and how all that went down. So I don't know if that is even possible. It might happen, you know, maybe when we get older, <laughs> when we don't really care so much anymore. Yeah, I mean, for people listening at the reunion, Becky and Kevin were rehashing some conversations from the past and Becky got super upset and she ended up leaving the reunion. And I guess, yeah, she's, you know, upset about it. You know, I guess in a way I could kind of relate because I never really felt like I suffered, like had any like emotional, I don't know, baggage from the show until after I did the reunion. And then all of a sudden I feel like, wow, I'm not doing so hot today. Right. Well, and there's that something never, about that never happened before. Well, there's something about 30 years of perspective and, yeah. you know, 30 years of being able to mature and soak this all up. We're going to talk about that with, with our friend, Eric Neese, the very first reality star on the planet. And we're going to be right back with getting real. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
with Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So we're talking to Eric Neese, and he is the original reality star to me. I mean, he was on the first season of The Real World, which was the first reality show. And 29 slash 30 years later, Paramount Plus and Viacom kind of, you know, absorbed MTV and and other channels. And so on uh, Paramount Plus, they called us back, starting with Eric's season of The Real World New York, to do a real world homecoming, put them back in the exact same loft that they lived in in 1992. So a little point of information, I found out, that the person that owns the loft that the New York season of the real world lived in was Winston Churchill's granddaughter. So just a little, just a little tidbit, just a little detail, but they put the cast back in the same exact house that they had all of this experience on live on MTV in 1992. Now they did this in the year 2020. And so Eric, one, probably the most beloved roommate had COVID and was not able to be there. He came on the television and was visiting, you know, via the internet, which hardly was a thing in 1992, but you know, we're talking and Beth and I had our own homecoming experience as well, but Eric obviously it was disappointing. You couldn't be in the loft with your roommates, but one of the most touching moments is when they came to, you know, the, the sidewalk of your, of your hotel where you were holed up and you came out on the balcony and waved and you could just see that they, you know, the disappointment that you couldn't actually be there to hug next, but you could really feel a lot of love just, you know, after so many years, they were like, man, I mean, as a viewer, I was I was feeling that. And, and you had to you had to feel that. Yeah, it was just it was disappointing. And especially to see what was happening with Becky and Kevin and that I couldn't be there to be a voice of reason, to give a different opinion or just calm things down a bit. Honestly, I don't think that that would have happened if I was in the loft. I think that, as we all know, when you have the presence of another being in the room that's involved in the conversation 
you never know what direction the conversation is going to go in. And I think that, you know, 30 years later, 30 years of life experiences, you know, the work that I do, it would have been a different situation. And so that's one of the things that I regret about not being there. But also, I think, you know, there's some positive, obviously, some really positive things that came out about it. You know, I'm able to speak openly about my experience with COVID. Obviously, it's a global issue. So that's also helped. I've been able to talk to a lot of different people about that experience to help them, you know, to adjust to all these, you know, changes that are going on in the world. Um, but yeah, them showing up on my sidewalk, and me greeting them from the balcony. It's like a scene out of, it's like Romeo and Juliet or something like that. <laughs> yeah. What would you have done? Like, we know Norman is a good friend of Beth and I, and he, you know, we stay in the reunion and he's sitting there. He's just telling Becky, shut up, shut up. He's sitting between Kevin and Becky and just watching that all unfold. And then they're showing you because your face is on the television screen. What would you have done like to prevent that from well, just would have unfold? stopped that immediately? No one should tell anybody to shut up, <laughs> you know, but I, but also, you know, I get it. We're a family. I mean, go walk into anybody's home and sit down with a family. And when things start to come up and people start getting triggered and emotions start to bubble, the reactions are going to start to happen. And there's a way to communicate. There's a, a, a vulnerable, gentle, compassionate, empathetic way to communicate with people when you're triggered. And that was not okay. And Norm knew that afterwards, but Norm and Becky have years of experiences together. And there's the, and, and we also have friendships and relationships that have gone on for a long time that nobody knows about. Like, yeah, yeah we were in a loft together 30 years ago. But what happened between 1992 and 2020, and there are, there's a lot of experiences that more so the rest of the cast has had with each other. Becky and Norman have had an ongoing relationship for 30 years. They talk all the time. They went to see each other. They visited each other at their homes. So there's a lot of information that you're not aware of. So they just mm. throw us back into a loft. It's a for a very short amount of time. There's a lot of things that happened in those years that, of course, they're going to come up in the moment. But there wasn't enough time to give those things, those emotions, those feelings, those experiences, the attention that it truly deserved. We were making a mm. a reunion show in a very short amount of time for a lot of money with a budget <laughs> and it had to get done in a certain amount of time. Well, you know, unfortunately, life doesn't work that way. It takes many, 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 many years, you know, not to just learn and understand yourself, but to learn and understand and give each other the time and the emotional content that we all deserve and need to grow and to evolve we didn't have that there. Well, and I don't think having been on the very next season of the real world, I don't think we could say that any better than what you just said. That's what the whole project is about is learning about yourself and learning about other people and tolerating the differences. Correct. Yep. You got a yeah, great he, radio voice, John. I just want to uh, thank you. I'm that. trying to, I'm trying to be on the radio with my music. I appreciate that. Great, <laughs> <laughs> so Eric. Yeah. I mean, I could totally relate with you with our, 
reunion. We did our reunion right after the New York season and I did feel like everything was rushed. We were on a time schedule and things were being rushed. I think for these reunions, you need more time. Two weeks is just not enough time, especially when you're when you want everybody to go back and, and relive certain moments and to, to rehash things. You need you need more time than two weeks, I feel like. Yeah. And people don't understand the production. The yeah. production's moving. You got a hundred people, you know, trying to get a sh- shot, <laughs> you know, in a certain amount of time. And yeah, it's just, it's just rushed. It's rushed. Too rushed. So after, after yeah. you did the, the, the real world, um, you got approached to do the grind and I looked it up and Russell Simmons was the executive producer. How did that all come together? Yeah, I looked it up. It says Russell Simmons was the executive producer of The Grind. Wow. I yeah, didn't know that. I looked it up. I got it. I've got it right here. It says, Russell. Do you remember where, where, where was the studio where that was recorded? Do you remember? Yeah, it was on 42nd street between uh, like eighth and ninth Avenue. That was national studios. That's where MTV did a lot of their shooting. Um, but that's where the grind, that's where it started. It started off as, as a half hour time slot to hang in with MTV. It was that was a 3-hour block and hanging with MTV became a 30-minute dance show because they wanted to test it once they canceled Club MTV. Uh and that went on for I think maybe like 3 months and then it got a revamp and then they gave it the name The Grind. We stayed in that studio for a while and then a uh, Beth you'll like this one. We were I was in the green room getting ready to do their show. And I hated all the clothes that were left. And they, and somebody in the green room, I forget who it was. It might've been Rod Asa. Some, somebody said, why don't you just do it without, without a shirt? And I said, I said, all right. I mean, cause a lot of the dancers were in yeah. there, you know, some of them would take their shirts off and dance, but I was the host. So I was going to be in front of the camera. And I think probably two weeks after I did that. We went right to the beach <laughs> and we went outside and now everybody's in a bathing suit. Nobody's got shirts on. And the show just exploded. We went from, I don't know how many millions of viewers, but like overnight we were around the world in like 90 million homes and the grind just exploded I after mean, that. The grind was huge. I mean, that was just like appointment <laughs> TV. Like I need Totally. I needed to see Eric dancing, you know, dancing around, talking about music and talking to the hottest music personalities. I mean, talk about some of the people that you've met. I mean, it's just incredible. Who talk about some of the people Everybody. that was on your show? Like, who are your favorites? Yeah, I mean, the biggest one was, you know, uh, Biggie Smalls, you know, Big Papa was his very first television appearance in Lake Havasu. Um yeah, everybody was on there. I like just I don't know, you just go down the down the list. Like anybody who was relevant in the 90s and they and and it wasn't just dance music, you know? It was it was it was hip hop, it was R&B, it was we did uh we would do like rock and roll shows and stuff. So we had all all different types of personalities and then celebrities, actors and hosts and anybody and everybody would come on and make an appearance, make a shout out, co-host a show. You know, whatever it was. I mean, that was the uh, height of MTV's doing... popularity. I mean, that that was it. I mean, oh, yeah. the real world was rolling. It was a huge hit. You were on the grind. I mean, I remember I remember watching you on the grind and thinking, 
wow, are we going to blow up like this guy? Like this guy's gone from living in a house with crazy people to being this host <laughs> on the most popular. I mean, all I can compare it to today is, is TikTok. Like MTV in the mid nineties oh, and early nineties. Way bigger was than TikTok. Eric was more influential than TikTok. I mean, you just turned the TV on and you landed on there and nine times out of 10, you were on there on the grind or we were on there with a marathon or people just landed on. Yeah. There. I mean, we talk about all the time celebrities that go, Oh, are you Beth? Are you, are you John? Are you Eric? Like I watched you. I'm like, okay, that's Tim McGraw that watched me on TV. That's, that's weird. Like, you know, Elton John, I've been told Kim Kardashian watched the real world. And, and, and so you're welcome America, whatever Kim Kardashian is, it's, you know, because she was inspired by the real world. Well, it wasn't just entertainment. It was a social experiment. That's that was what was interesting about it. Like I said, you're bringing seven people into a situation with an open mic to talk about whatever it is that you want to talk about. And now look where we are today. That's what Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, that's what all of them are. The real world basically spawned mm. all of that. Can you imagine? But, you know, what started all that was soap was soap right. operas you know that's kind of like that's like what soap operas were and that's john and john john murray and mary elspunum that was the world that they came from so they took the soap opera you know system and then just put plopped it into can real you imagine people. how many twitter or or followers you would have on social media if they'd had it uh, in the 90s i mean you got to think about it right mtv at that time was the only network that had satellite Right. So the Super Bowl, which would be broadcasted all around the world at that time, would get 30, 300 million viewers. Baywatch at that time had the most viewed audience of 100 million. And then right after that was the grind with no Internet. So, yeah, it would be nice if I had a little magic wand and I could just go, boop, let's relaunch the grind I, would be wonderful for my pocket. I'll tell you what, Eric, <laughs> the world needs Eric Nice and the grind. I mean, I'm going to call Russell Simmons right after this podcast because <laughs> you need to be back on doing the grind, doing what you do best. I mean, that was, I mean, you just, I will say you want to hear something funny. You'll appreciate this. So after the real, after we did the reunion, you know, as you know, the team, the publicist team comes in, they start prepping you, getting you ready. You're going to talk to this person. You're going to talk to that person. And we actually had a meeting with standards and practices. Okay. Like, because you're coming into a new world now because of social media. So you have to be careful about what you say and how you say it and all these things. Right. And I said to them, we were on a meeting. It was probably like 12 executives. It was one of those big executives where they zoomed everybody in. There may even have been more because wow. it was the first one. Right. And I was like, yeah, you know, I was in the jungle in an ayahuasca ceremony and I had this vision and I was there with some of my friends and we were all dressed in our shaman gear and we're in the jungle and this maloka and I had this vision that we all left the Maloka and we went to the airport and there was a private jet that said MTV on it. And we all got on the jet and we flew to New York City. They picked us up in a suburban and we're all in our sh our shaman gear and we're cruising through New York and we're listening to shaman music, medicine music. But when we got down to 42nd Street and they opened up the doors, all you could hear was 
And as we walked out of the suburban through the doors, wardrobe came and started changing our clothes into night nightlife clothes. And we walked through and somebody handed me a microphone and then I heard it. It was like a still small voice in my head. Yo, 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 what's up? This is Eric Nice straight out of the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Well, and then oh they God. realized I was joking, <laughs> but oh, I was no. actually, I was trying to plant a seed to yeah. say, wouldn't that be cool? That would be pretty cool. Oh my goodness. So, you know, they took, they took season two, the show that Beth and I were on. They put mm-hmm. us back in the same exact house in Venice beach that we lived in. And we were there for a couple of weeks and we had our own events, which were, you know, crazy and traumatic and happy and joyful. But I will say that my best experience on the real world, all the way from 1993 up until and through the homecoming that we had was when they sent us back to Joshua Tree. We had gone to Joshua Tree in 93 and we were sent on this outward bound, miserable, you know, camping, hiking, no food you know, very difficult situation. And then they sent us back on the homecoming and we thought, oh my goodness, this is going to be a repeat. And we got to this beautiful location, the gate opened, we pulled through and we saw you sitting there. And I will just say <laughs> it was so awesome to have you be part of our homecoming because you were kind of unable to be part of yours the way everybody wanted you to be. But you were, you were a, a guest cameo on our homecoming at the Joshua Tree. And honestly, Eric, just having, you know, become your friend over all these years, that was probably the best, biggest highlight of my real world experience in 30 years was having you at Joshua Tree with us. It was awesome. It was great and fantastic. I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's beautiful, John. It was the best gift. It was the best gift. I mean, the producer, I was telling the producers, can you please bring us Eric since he, since he had COVID, can he please come on our show? Please, please, please. That's what I really want. Eric, please. I kept saying. (laughs) And you got it. And I didn't think they would do it. You know, I would just, I would just nonchalantly just always say Eric, Eric, Eric. And then for you to be like, oh my God, this is amazing. And they flew me, they flew me from (laughs) Peru. I was in Peru doing ceremonies and retreats there. That's so funny. Well, we're talking to Eric Neese, the icon of the real world, the icon of reality TV here on Getting Real. We'll be right back. Well, we're back with Eric Neese. We're so glad that you're, you're here on Getting Real. When the grind ended, how did they, how did they come to you and say, Hey, the grind season has, has, has run its course. We're going to stop. And that was a bad decision, by the way, MTV, <laughs> like to ever end the grind. I mean, yeah. That's what not happened? what happened. That's oh, not what happened. Tell okay, us, what, tell happened? Us what happened. What happened? It, it stopped for me because I left. I walked away from it. And why oh. did you do that? Because, because oh. something very traumatical was happening to me, very traumatic was happening to me in my life at that time, which would set me on a spiritual path of healing and transformation and awakening and evolution that never in my wildest imagination thought that it would go to where I am today and what I'm doing today. But I was on the grind. We were filming at National Studios in New York City and CNC Music Factory came on the show to perform and along with cnc music factory was this little five foot seven five foot eight black guy and he found out about me through dick scott who was the manager for the new kids on the block boys to men marky mark in the 90s dick scott was was a big big time manager and so dick and 
had been talking about me. And I was getting my hair cut in New York City at Astor Place. And Dick Scott was there. And he came up to me and said, you're you're Eric Neese, right? And I said, yep. He said, well, I'm Dick Scott and I'm a manager and I would like to manage your career. And I said, okay. But he didn't really know what to do with me because I was personality. I was a host and he only worked with artists. So I stayed with him for a few months, got to know Mark Wahlberg pretty well, played some hoop with him, traveled a little bit with him. And um, and then that's when came into my life. And this guy is a predator. He was a predator at that time. I'm pretty sure he still is a predator. And he first he groomed me for about three months. He wined and dined me. He introduced me to Roberta Flack, George Benson. He took me to Sylvia Robinson's house from the Sugar Hill Gang. These are all very, very well-known, famous artists from the 70s. And he was heavily involved in working with Sylvia Robinson back then. And at that time, he was working and producing music with CNC Music Factory. And he's kept calling me, calling me, calling me, calling me for a few months. And then finally, I took a dinner with him. And he started dropping all these names and uh, about what he could do for my career and all these people he knew. And I, he knew I was interested in music and I loved music and loved dancing and, you know, thought, oh, maybe one day I could be a rapper or something like that. And, you know, he said that he could make all these things happen for me. And it's interesting because, you know, at that time in my life, my friends were always around me, my family and my friends. I never traveled or went anywhere by myself, especially at that time when the grind was as big as it was because I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't walk into a mall without a hundred kids chasing me. And so they were like a, obviously they're my friends and I love them that they were also protection for me. And I grew up in New Jersey and these are the types of guys that, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to mess with. So I felt safe and protected with all of them. And then the brainwashing began with and started to share with me. It's interesting. This is the first time that I'm taught telling this story in detail in this way. And and I want to thank you for asking me to come on and do this, because a week ago, I probably wouldn't have done this. And I hope that the producer is OK. I understand that your producer went to the emergency room for something so i hope that she's okay she is um, but in just this last week something shifted in my heart and shifted in my throat and i felt comfortable to share this story so i'm sharing this for the very first time for 30 years in this way with detail and so this guy said to me that you are a chosen one and i have to share this information with you for your future I'm 20, 22 years old at the time, 22, 23 years old. And I have no idea what he's talking about. And he starts to tell me about these very dark, sinister organizations or private or secret societies and things like that in the world. Now, today, if you go on the Internet, everybody's talking about it all over the place. It's it's, it's if you're not questioning <laughs> The truth of the global elite 
people in the world and governments and stuff like that, especially what we all went through with COVID. We're, we're all you're either thinking about it. You're in the conversation. You're wondering what's going on. So this is 30 years ago that this was shared with me. There was no Internet. So he starts to talk to me about the Illuminati and the New World Order and the Trilateral Commission and these secret societies and all this stuff. And I obviously I was in shock, but he got my attention. But it was like this guy knew my heart. He knew how big my heart was and how much I loved my friends. I loved my family. I always got involved with charity work, with helping children. I worked for the Elizabeth Glazer Foundation for many years, raising money for for uh, for pediatric AIDS and kids born with AIDS. And any opportunity that I had, I always donated my time to a cause, especially for children. So this guy was introducing me to people in the business, executives from the biggest music labels in the world. He was bringing me to the biggest producers, the biggest directors. I had a, a deal with Universal Studios for my own talk show at that time, which not many people know about. I was almost casted as Robin in the Batman movie with Val Kilmer. So this is where my career was going. I was taking meetings with Aaron Spelling and all the biggest names in the entertainment industry. So he's telling me about all this dark stuff. But at the same time, and it's interesting, John, that I'm doing this with you because I can almost cry right now. But I spent a lot of time in Revelations with this mm. guy. He carried a Bible around with him. So he used the word of God and was also sharing this information about these very dark satanic potentially. I don't know if it's real or not. All I know is what happened to me personally. And so he used these things to get to me. and. Eventually, where that would go was he would tell me that he was sick and he was dying and that some things happened to him with a woman where he could no longer be sexual with a woman. And I don't want to get I won't get into more of the details. I'll 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 spare, you know, the audience that. But eventually he manipulated me, groomed me, brainwashed me into him molesting me. And the reason why that happened is because he said that he needed to pass this information on to me. And there I was in my apartment in New Jersey on the Hudson River, just him and I. And I allowed him to do that to me in a state of mind of total confusion and loss. And this would lead into, you know, what would happen later on in my life, but also what happened to me earlier on in my life, because I actually lost my virginity to a woman who raped me. And so that has been in my life since I'm a child. And also I would find out later on that I actually brought this in from my past lives. So the reason why the grind ended was because I was on the verge of suicide and my relationship with Universal Studios was destroyed. My relationship with MTV was destroyed because my mind and my heart was destroyed and distorted. And so this happened a few times with him. My friends were there. They're all aware of it. They all know who he is. There would be people over 
the years that would come to me and ask me if I knew him. Other young guys that were models and in the business because he was trying to groom them too. And I would say, stay away from him, stay away from him. I even have a very dear friend of mine who won't say his name, but a very influential, powerful person that he came to me and he said, if you want us to take him out, we'll do it. Give us the green light. And I, I said, I can't do that. I don't, I don't have it in my heart, heart to do that. I can't live with that for the rest of my life. And it was very, very, very serious. And so I tell this story. I've told this story before, but I was standing on the Hudson River outside of my apartment with my grandfather's knife on my wrist, looking at the Viacom building. Oh, John, you're going to love this. I'm going to lean into this one. So the night before the last episode of The Grind, I disappeared and I turned my phone off and that production is trying to find me. We have a half a million dollar show to shoot under the Brooklyn Bridge for The Grind. And I was so lost. I was so confused. I, I was just did. I lost myself completely. And it was very, very, very sad. And I went I went home that night to go to sleep. And I had a dream. And in that dream, driving in a car with one of my friends who was always with me. And I'm in the back seat with my publicist. And the publicist is like trying to convince me to go do something, do something. And behind me is a red truck. And in the red truck is a voice. The voice is going, I've got you. I've got you now. You're mine. I've got you. And then the car turns into an open field and over the field, I can see this vividly till this day, thousands of kids and a marching band dun, 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 with signs going, Eric, Eric, Eric. And, and I woke up from that dream and I turned on my phone and my mom called and she goes, honey, I know you're upset. I love you very much. She goes, but think about all those children, all those kids that watch your show and love you. Do it for them. Do it for them. And I said, all right, you're right. And I called up production. I went to Brooklyn. And I was upset because Jenny McCarthy just came into MTV at the time. And they were going to give her four or five shows of The Grind without me. She was going to host them herself. So I took that, you know, personal. And uh, I go to the show. Everybody's there. We're underneath the Brooklyn Bridge. This is so cool. So I'm underneath the Brooklyn Bridge and I go, I get there and there's Jenny McCarthy and me standing there getting ready to do the first show. And they go, okay, cue to music, roll tape. And I go like this. Hi, I'm Eric Neese. Welcome to the grind. That's Jenny McCarthy. And they go, cut, 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 cut. <laughs> They're like, if you're going to do it, you got to do it, Eric. And I turned around and I, I said to all the dancers, I said, I just want to let all of you know, I love all of you guys, because half of them were my close friends. I said, I love all of you, but I want to let you know this is my last show I'm going to be leaving after today. And we did all the shows. And on the last show of the taping of The Grind on the, on the Hudson River in Brooklyn, right before we started the show, a huge dark cloud. It was a beautiful sunny day. This huge dark cloud comes down the river and it thunders and lightning on the last show. I had to do the last show with a wire mic. And when I said goodbye, my final goodbye, the cloud left 
and the sun came up and that was it. And that would send me off on a very intense spiritual path with my grandmaster, uh, with other mentors, with the Native American medicine wheel. And then later on in my life, seven years of more than 350 ceremonies with ayahuasca, where now what I have been doing is what's called ancestral lineage healing. The work that I do is going deep into my lineage and healing all of the trauma that my family and my lineage uh, was not willing to do. That chosen one in my lineage to do that work. So that comes back around full circle. And I see how that how that has been overflowing in my life to people, to friends and family, you know, where I can share my story about what I've personally gone through and how these medicines, these plant medicines from around the world can really help people to heal. If I didn't have those medicines, I probably wouldn't be here talking to you. Wow. Wow. We're talking to Eric Neese from the real world, the grind. He's sharing a lot of things that he's never shown, never shared before, especially in these details and tell him just everything that is important to him and the journey he's been on. We're so thankful. I'm so thankful for you as a friend. We're going to be right back with more of Eric Neese on Getting Real. Wow, Eric, thank you for uh, sharing all that. Well, we're back with Getting Real and we're here with Eric Neese, the original reality star of all time from the real world. Eric, we actually actually met you briefly a few times, but then got to know you in 1997 when they chose one person from each real world and they called it the Road Rules All-Stars. But actually, it was the first challenge as we know it, the challenge still on the air. It was the real world Road Rules Challenge, but they called ours the Road Rules All-Stars, which was kind of strange because we were five real worlders. Well, we went to New Zealand. We did you know, crazy stuff, but actually we were in Los Angeles at a time and had, had run out of money and we actually crashed at Bess house. And so she was actually on the challenge too, the very first one in 1997. So that's where I got to know you. I'm like, I was on the real world with Beth. I was on, I was on, you know, the challenge with Eric, but you've done a lot of challenges. You hosted a challenge called the battle of the seasons in 2001. I remember it vividly because it was right after the nine 11 attacks. And I, I got cast very late to fill in for David, who was supposed to be Beth's roommate, flew us to Cabo San Lucas. And then Beth and I got eliminated and voted off. And you were a host with Mark long. Do you remember why? Cause we didn't perform poorly. We got voted off first. And I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember that was right before a hurricane came and hit and you remember yeah. much about those days? I do. I mean, I remember the hurricane. How did you get voted off? Is I thought uh, didn't you aren't aren't you supposed to get eliminated through performance? That's what I thought. Oh, no. I wish it was like that. If it was like performance, I think we would be winning a lot of money over the past yeah. years. If it was based no. on performance, we got voted <laughs> off because of unpopularity. And uh, I know that I'm pretty popular, but I just was wondering if you had yeah. any insight. Yeah, Bill. <laughs> and I'll tell you, it was your roommate who is now a dear friend of all of ours, but it was your roommate that, that, that was there and said, let's get rid of Beth and John. And it was Norman Norm. who, who <laughs> instigated all of that. We got to get rid of Beth. Good well, TV. You know, Norman, and I, Norman and I are great now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I love Norman. I love Norman, but at that oh, time, yeah, he was not happy with me. He wanted me out of there. So you've been on challenges. You've hosted challenges. I want to play a quick game with you. Just rapid fire basketball or football basketball I already knew the answer to that <laughs> all 
All right. I'm going to ask you a question that every male has an opinion on LeBron or Jordan. Jordan. Tell me why. You can't even compare the two. If you if you are a basketball fan and you've played basketball yourself and you've watched both of them through their career, offense, defense, work ethic, the ability to keep a team together, to work together, to work through challenges and adversity in a competitive zone. Nobody, the only person that even comes close to Michael Jordan's commitment to the game is Kobe Bryant. All right. Let's say I'm going to, we're going to play two on two. You against me, and we're going to have a teammate, each one. You get first pick. And there's Michael Jordan, there's LeBron James, and there's Kobe Bryant. You're going to pick your teammate, and I'm going to pick my teammate. I'm picking You're Michael. Picking, okay, and I'm going to take LeBron, and you think that you and Michael Jordan would beat me and LeBron. I mean, come on, John. I'm from Kentucky, Eric. You know, you know, you, you, know, you, know my, you know my history. Yeah, I you know, know you're you know, you know my history before television and the real world and all that stuff, right? You know what I did before this. You know who my dad is, uh -huh. right? Do you know the history of my family? I know your dad was an NBA referee. My yeah. dad was an dad NBA, was an NBA referee. referee. No. My brother, uh -huh. till this day, may have been the first punter drafted into the NFL in the sixth round. A kicker doesn't happen. My grandfather's brother, Ed Franco, mm -hmm. was one of the best offensive linemen to ever play football. He was a teammate of Vince Lombardi. All my okay. uncles. My father was arguably one of the best basketball players in the state of New Jersey when he was in high school and college. Mm -hmm. I lived, I lived on a field or a court until, well, actually, I continued to play through my 20s. But once the entertainment thing happened, I mean, I was on my way to go to college to play some sport, football, mm -hmm. basketball. I played every sport under the sun. That was my life. Yeah, I'm just poking the bear because I actually agree with you about Michael Jordan. <laughs> I was just I was just want to talk smack to you because I know you love basketball and so do I. And I was just, you know, wanting to talk a little, little smack. But everybody, yeah, everybody wants to have that conversation. And of course we're talking about in their prime, you know, it's apples and oranges. I mean, they're they're amazing athletes. Well, I mean, as you those, as, but... as you know, my response right there was full ego uh -huh. competitive Eric. Sure. Yeah. Which, which as if we, you know, as if we were on the court and we were trash talking. So yeah, um. exactly. And I knew that that would spark trash. All right. So here we go. Here's another one. Pamela Anderson or Jennifer Aniston. You're funny. Okay. All right. All right. Well, Skip well, that one. How well, about, well, if I could go back to the ego for a second. Okay. For, All right. for, for a good reason, I would say Jennifer, as you know, why? Huh? Because because there was a time that you dated Pamela Anderson, right? As you were the hunk from the grind. Okay, okay. Here we go. Here we go. Sorry about that. I'm usually not that mean, but <laughs> I sometimes am. I was on the real world for all you know. Real world or the challenge? Ooh, that's a tough one. Mm. I mean, I'm so I'm so competitive. I grew up in such a competitive environment, and I love. One of my favorite things to do when I was a child was play manhunt in my neighborhood, you know, where you get like, you know, 12 of your friends and there's two teams and 
you got to go hunt down and find the other guys and then bring them back to the jail and then jump off of trees and roofs to free them. And I mean, I'm so competitive at nature. I probably would have to say the challenge. Beth, that same question. I want to know. You've been on the real world twice. You've been on multiple challenges for you, real world or challenge. You know what? I love them both, but I would say if I could go on a challenge where it was just based on performance, that would be, I would love that because Mm -hmm. sports have rules, right? So if it was just, if it was not based on any kind of popularity or anything like that, and was just based on the sports, because I'm super, super competitive. I grew up playing sports as well. I, that's, that's a challenge I would love to show up for. That would be amazing. Yeah. Here comes that smack talk. Here comes that smack talk. (laughs) I I hear the competitive Beth coming on. Oh my goodness. Eric, Eric, have you ever, you've won a challenge before, right? Yeah. And would you come back to do another challenge? Sure. Oh, I think that'd be amazing. What's going on? Why are we not seeing Eric Nice on the challenge? Like, I don't understand that. We need Eric on the challenge. What, what, what is it? Tell us. I can tell you why. Why? Um, because when COVID happened, they they started to bring back uh, OG challenges. I wasn't interested in the challenges before because I was just busy doing other stuff. And then then these OG challenges came. And then, of course, Mark called me and he was like, dude, you got to do this. You got to do it. You got to do it. And then COVID happened. All the lockdowns happened. The vaccine mandates happened. And I'm not vaxxed. I'm not getting vaxxed. I'm not interested in the vax. And, you know, a lot of these corporations and businesses, they had to follow the government's regulations. So they asked me if I wanted to do it. And they said, but you have to be vaccinated. And then I said, I'm I'm not interested. Ah. Well, I can't think of a more OG. There is there frankly is no ORG or person than you (laughs) when it comes to. It's not even a word, but you know, where I'm from, we make up words where we want to, but you are, you are the first, you are an icon, become a great friend. Love you dearly. I appreciate my time that I've had with you. And I hope we have many more experiences in the future. Eric, you're awesome. You've been a great guest. We've been so excited to have you. Oh my goodness. Eric, we love you. And, and if anybody is listening out there, we need Eric back doing some, some dance, some music. We need to reboot the grind or or some other new show with Eric Neese. <laughs> Eric Neese, more of Eric Neese in our life. So Thank you. let's get that going, somebody out there. Eric, where can people find you on social media? Um, my name, Instagram, it's Eric Neese, E-R-I-C-N-I-E-S-333. Okay, so that's your official Instagram. Great. You want any other socials? Nope. Just Instagram. Just okay. All right, everybody out there, go and, and follow Eric. For the latest Eric Neese, we need more Eric Neese every day. Follow you, follow Beth. Eric Neese on Instagram at Eric Neese 333. Follow Beth on Instagram at Best Real World. I'm at johnbrennan.com. And follow the podcast at Beth at Getting Real with John Beth. Thank you, Eric. We love you, buddy. Love Thanks you, for Eric. Listening to Getting Real. Love you, John. Love you, Beth. Thank you. You've been listening to Getting Real with John and Beth on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Executive produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Edited by Michael DeVestia. Produced by Lindley Ehrlich. Hosted by Bess Delarchek and John Brennan. Be sure to follow us on social media on Instagram and TikTok. You can follow Beth at Best Real World and follow John at JohnBrennan.com. Also, follow the podcast on Instagram at Getting Real with John and Beth. Until next time, keep it real. Beth!
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 